We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. So for the last six weeks, we've been in our Easter series, um, and we took uh, six weeks to preach through some texts that related to Jesus' resurrection. So where we're picking up is actually um, about where we left off in the Gospels, and I know it was a long time ago, so just a little bit of a refresher, that at where we left off in the Gospel story, Jesus, uh, for the first time, begins to talk about his death to the disciples. Up until that point, he had been performing miracles, casting out demons, teaching them things about the kingdom of God, but he had not disclosed to them that it was God's will that he should die and be raised to life again. So this shift happens in the Gospels, and you can feel it as you look at these passages of Scripture because Jesus begins to set the direction of his face and his life toward the cross, and this affects his teaching and the disciples' processing, and the disciples especially are really confused about what it is that Jesus is saying. Well, the passage we're looking at today is Jesus' second time in the Gospel of Mark beginning to talk to the disciples about his death. And there's really four snapshots in this passage that we're going to look at. The first is Jesus predicting his own death and resurrection. The second is this argument that happens with the disciples. The third is an illustration Jesus creates surrounding a child who is among them. And fourth involves a man who's casting out demons and offends the disciples as a result. So there's these four pictures But the first picture, Jesus' discussion about his death and resurrection, is a shadow over the next three pictures. So the next three snapshots that happen in this passage flow out of Jesus predicting his own death and resurrection, and they're teaching points to reinforce what it is that Jesus is saying. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. If you could stand just to honor God's word this morning, and we'll begin reading Mark 9 verse 30. It says, They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, but whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. You can take your seat. Obviously, in the passage that we're looking at this morning the insecurities of the disciples come out pretty strongly, don't they? In more than one way, we see where they're insecure. 
So my one point this morning is that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus deal a decisive blow to our insecurities. I think probably every one of us in this room knows what it's like to feel insecurities and to let those insecurities affect our behavior. Those insecurities are often rooted in false beliefs and in sin or in wounds which were done to us, which were often caused by the insecurities of other people. So here we are, and it happens in the church too, where a bunch of insecure people bumping into each other all the time, right? So I think that this passage uh, probably relates to every single one of us in this room. But I take heart when I read the passage that we just read because we see that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus don't just deal with our sin, but they also deal with the insecurities that come out of our sin, that grow out of our sin, that grow out of our woundedness. So Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection, and then he begins to talk to the disciples in three different ways about the insecurities that they're facing. So first of all, Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. I find it really interesting that Jesus never operated out of insecurity. Think about it. He was the most secure, confident person who ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus had this internal confidence that could not be shaken. Now, don't confuse it for arrogance because as we're going to see, the more secure we are in the love of the Father, the more secure we are in who he has made us to be, the less we feel a need to act out of pride and arrogance. See, we're secure so that we can act in humility. This is what security did for Jesus. It allowed him to teach with authority, to serve with humility, and to die with dignity. Think about it. At this point, from this point on, some of Jesus' most controversial teachings are going to start coming forward, and it is going to affect his popularity rating. People are going to start to leave him because they can't stomach the things that he's saying. But over and over again, it's said about Jesus in the Gospels that he taught with an authority like no one had ever seen in any of their religious leaders because he was not teaching just to get people to like him. He was saying what was true and kind of letting the chips fall wherever they fell. There was a kind of internal security they had. He served with humility. It's interesting. In John's gospel, um, not long before he goes to the cross, it says that Jesus went into the upper room with the disciples. And I love how John words it. It says that Jesus, knowing he had come from the Father and knowing he was going to the Father, took a towel and wrapped it around his waist and began to wash the disciples' feet. His ability to do even the lowliest of tasks came out of this internal security that was forged in his identity. He knew who he was. And that's why a low task like washing the disciples' feet didn't threaten him. He was able to do it. And then to die with dignity. You know, Jesus' death, trial, torture, all of that is terribly humiliating, terribly painful to him. And yet, there is this steel in the soul of Jesus as he goes to the cross. You know, sometimes... He doesn't even answer the questions that are being posed to him by the people who are in charge, by the religious leaders or by Pontius Pilate. They're asking him questions. Sometimes he doesn't even feel the need to answer. He's so unthreatened by them. 
there's a kind of confidence that's built up within him. Where did that confidence come from? Well, there's two things that Jesus knew about his mission and his future. And every time he has one of these prediction passages, he, he says both of these things in connection with each other. The first was that he was going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And the second was that he would be raised from the dead. He knew both of those things, that he would die and that he would be raised. Now follow this. That means that on one hand, Jesus never thought that it was possible to experience glory and power and victory without going through the cross. He didn't have a romantic worldview where everything was going to turn out okay without suffering. He, you know, and he knew that suffering was part of the package. And this allowed him to face it without being surprised. He knew that that was part of it. But on the other hand, Jesus never suffered without knowing that resurrection wasn't coming. See, he knew that resurrection was around the corner. He knew that his suffering, his death, wasn't the final word. He never suffered without knowledge of that, that suffering wasn't the final word. And I think this expanded his capacity to be able to suffer and to suffer securely, even in the midst of his worst pain. So he knew both of these things, that he was going to die and that he was going to be raised again. Now, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus doesn't just offer security for Jesus and his ministry on earth. It also deals with all of our insecurities. And I see three insecurities that surface in the disciples. You know, if Jesus is operating in all of this security, the disciples are doing the opposite in this passage. They're terribly insecure. And then they're insecure about their insecurities, if you notice it in the passage. They're like embarrassed to talk to Jesus about it. So first of all, the death and the resurrection of Jesus deals a decisive blow to the insecurity that says, I need to be served. Now, I just want to point out something about each of these insecurities that really, they are rooted in legitimate desires that in our sinfulness, we try to meet illegitimately. So much of our sin is rooted in desires that are good. Desires even that God put within us. But it's our illegitimate effort to meet those desires in ways that God did not intend that causes us to sin. I think the desire to be great, you know, which the disciples are arguing about on the road. It's interesting, Jesus overhears them, asks them what they were arguing about. I don't know how much the disciples understood at this point, but they knew that there was something about their argument that did not jive with Jesus' teaching because they're embarrassed to tell them about it. But I think this desire to be great is rooted in a desire to be served. I say that because Jesus answers, objects to their desire for greatness by talking about service. So their desire to be great is rooted in a desire to be served, which is really rooted in a desire to be loved. And guess what? A desire to be loved is a legitimate desire. God made us relational. He made it so that we crave and we long for love. But the problem is this, that we in our sinfulness and woundedness translate the desire to be loved into a desire for everybody else to serve us all the time. And then we put this unspoken, often unspoken, obligation onto the lives of the other people that we relate to. So we do this in our friendships, right? 
We do it to our boyfriend, our girlfriend. We definitely do it in our marriages, right? It's interesting. We're at the altar making vows about serving each other, but the unspoken obligation is what? That you will serve me, right? That you will fulfill my needs, you know, to be served. And we certainly do it to churches. So Christians find all kinds of spiritual ways, kind of like how the disciples hide their true desire to be great. We find all kinds of spiritual language. You know, I'm just looking for a place to feed me. I'm just looking for a place to, you know, we find all this is something for, you know, the kids and the youth or whatever. And it's not even that all of that is bad. It's just oftentimes the unspoken obligation we put on the church that we choose is that it's the obligation of that place and those people to serve me, to make me feel loved, and to keep me happy, right? And then we find, we're startled to find, that the people that we put that obligation onto are unable to fill it because they themselves are broken and wounded and insecure. Because they need the same things from other people. And so, at some point, when our friends or our, our spouse or our church can't fulfill that obligation anymore, we're ready to move on, right? To the next person, to the next church, hoping that somehow it will get better, but we find that we're disappointed again and again and again. Now watch. This is how the cross and the resurrection deals with that. Jesus has just predicted his own death. Listen. This is the creator of galaxies and stars who has taken on the weakness of human flesh. And he has just told the disciples that his mission is not just a mission to glory, but it's a mission to glory through suffering, meaning that the creator of the universe on the cross makes himself, it's a complete reversal, makes himself the servant of humankind. Isn't that crazy? God, who has every right to demand every bit of service out of us, makes himself vulnerable and takes on the position of the lowest. The reason Jesus is the very highest is because he was the very lowest. The reason God exalted him is because he went so low. See? So, so this is what Jesus does for us. The creator of the universe serves us. And brothers, sisters, when we look at the cross in our insecurity with our desire to feel loved and we see not just a person, not just a church, not just a spouse, but God himself hanging there, bleeding for us, giving us all of his love, becoming a servant for us, it meets that deepest desire in our heart in a way that nothing else can. We are loved. And that desire, having been fulfilled at the cross, it's final. We're loved. The question is settled. That desire, having been fulfilled at the cross, then frees us to take the obligations off of the relationships in our lives. It frees us to say to our friends, to our spouse, to our church, look, even when in your own insecurities you don't have the capacity to serve me and love me, you know what? I'm loved by someone greater. And I have a security deep down inside of me that is not dependent on the love I receive from other people. Second insecurity. Here it is. The death and the resurrection of Jesus deals with the insecurity that says, I can't appear to be weak. This is what the disciples were afraid of, was of looking weak. Now, what is that? 
Well, the fear of weakness is really a fear of the deepest kind of weakness that we all face, which is death. So when we're afraid of looking or being weak, what we're really afraid of is death itself. And the need that we feel deep inside is to be safe and secure, to escape death. That desire to escape death, to be secure and safe, is a good desire. But in our sin, in our woundedness, we try to meet it in an illegitimate way. So what we do is we work really hard to disassociate ourselves from weakness and from vulnerability. And we do this in all kinds of ways, in our appearance, in our dress. I'm wearing a power a power jacket this morning. We, we, we try to disassociate from, you know, things that make us look incompetent. You know, there's some people who only do the things that they're competent at, ever. And they might be really good at it. They might get compliments. But they never try to do the things they're not competent at. Because what are they doing? They're hedging their life to disassociate from weakness. To try to make it look like they're always successful all the time. And they might get compliments, but people might not see. They're never taking risks. They're, they're only doing the things that are their biggest strengths because they never want to appear to be weak. What this creates in us ultimately is a desire not to only disassociate from weak feelings and from weak appearances, but also, catch this, from weak people. Because you see, there's something about weakness and vulnerability in others that reminds us of our own weakness and vulnerability, and pretty soon we find ourselves not wanting to be around that, not wanting to associate with it. So this is how Jesus answers that. He takes this child, takes the child into his arms. Now, listen, Jesus uses children um, to make teaching points at different places in the gospel, and the one we're probably most familiar with is when Jesus says, that to enter the kingdom, to receive everything that God has for us, we must be like children, right? But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that the disciples who up until this point are arguing about who is the greatest ought to be willing to welcome children. He's saying they should be willing to welcome the weak, to welcome the vulnerable. See, this is how the cross and the resurrection deals with this. See, Jesus was able to embrace extreme weakness, even to the point of death, because he knew that his God would not leave him to the grave. Right? He knew that the Father would not leave him to the grave, that vindication and resurrection would come. When you know that, it allows you to embrace weakness without fear. Death loses its power. Death loses its sting. And we're able to look death in the eyes and say, I serve a resurrected Jesus, a God who empties graves. That's my God. That's who I serve. And it erases that fear out of our lives. So we can embrace weakness. And as we get in touch with our own weakness we are able to embrace the weakness of other people. And this is amazing because this is what Jesus says. If you welcome the weak, if you welcome a child, he's talking about what kind of community he envisions us being. He says, if you can welcome the weak, if you can welcome a child, if you can welcome the vulnerable, and if they have a place among you, he says, get this, 
the world doesn't see it, but you've actually welcomed me, Jesus says. And then he says, and if you've welcomed me, actually, you get the Father too, because we're one. <laughs> right? So you get Jesus, you get the Father. Now, I don't read news stories like this very much, but I've noticed like when they pop up on my phone that when celebrities are doing stuff that we're supposed to care about, you know, and they're holding, they're holding a party, you know, or something like that, it's not just who's hosting the party that makes it into the news story, right, or what's happening at the party. It's also who shows up at the party, right? Because the way our world thinks is that who shows up at the party says something about who the host is, right? Well, this is what Jesus is saying. When you welcome the weak, when you are in touch enough with your own weakness that you are secure enough to associate with and welcome weak people, whatever that weakness looks like, he says, guess who shows up at the party? Jesus. Guess who shows up at the party? The Father. At the party of my life, I want Jesus and the Father showing up. You know what I mean? Listen, at the party of this church, I want Jesus and the Father showing up. What are we doing if he's not on the guest list and if he's not showing up? But he says this, when you welcome, when you're secure enough in his love, secure enough in the resurrection to associate with weakness, there he is. Third insecurity. The cross and the resurrection deals with the insecurity that says, I have to be in with them. That I have to be in with them. Now, I put it in quotes because we define this in different ways, and it often correlates to the ways we've been wounded, right? We often define being in as the opposite of whatever, whatever it felt like to us to be out, right? And we often define them as the opposite of, whatever, of whoever it felt like we were excluded from, right? So we begin to judge the value of our lives by being in with them. This gets exposed in the disciples because they observe this guy. Who is this guy? They observe this guy casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he's being successful. And to highlight the insecurities of the disciples, remember that earlier on in Mark chapter 9, the disciples had been trying to cast out a demon unsuccessfully. And Jesus had to come and save the day. Now they're seeing this guy. And he just comes up and he starts doing it. You know, using Jesus' name and he's just casting out demons. Now, what is that about? It makes them feel insecure because up until this point, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark had only given verbal authority to the disciples to preach the kingdom, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons to the twelve. But now this guy is doing it, and he's doing it better than them, quite frankly. And it challenges a feeling, even if they hadn't named it, it was a feeling they had that they were part of an elitist group they got to be with Jesus and do things that other people didn't get to do. Their sense of security in this way wasn't coming from Jesus himself. It was coming from being an insider, right? And this guy is threatening that. So John and the other disciples go over and they try to shut it down, right? Well, this is what Jesus says. And this ought listen, if you've been in the church at any time at all, this passage right here ought to make us squirm a little bit. If it doesn't, we're probably not being honest with the full force of what Jesus says because this is the most inclusive language of Jesus probably in all of the Gospels. Here's where he draws the line. So long as you're not against me, you're for me. What is that? Listen, if there's ever a passage 
to challenge our denominationalism. Here it is. If there's ever a passage that challenges the way, the hoops that we set up for people to have to jump through on every single little thing, here it is. But this is why the cross and the resurrection deals decisively with this insecurity. I've been reading some great stuff on this lately. Listen, think about the cross. On the cross, Jesus dies and accomplishes our redemption in the most irreligious way possible. You understand what I'm saying? There was nothing religious about the way he died. Think about it. See, we've taken the cross and we've turned it into a religious symbol, but that's not what it was. That's not what it was. Think about it. Isn't it incredible that our redemption was not accomplished in the temple? Think about it. Was not accomplished through a religious ritual. Was not accomplished because priests said X, Y, and Z. It was accomplished by Jesus dying outside of the holy city of Jerusalem in a place where people threw garbage, where anybody could just walk up and see what was happening. See, Jesus accomplished our redemption by completely going around the religious system. He challenged this notion that you have to go through religion to get to God. Isn't that incredible? It's what he challenged. And so what that means is, outside of the holy city, where there's no official religious anything happening, the only religious people there are the religious leaders who are mocking him, who are on the wrong side, who are against Jesus. There, his arms are spread open. There, he bleeds. There, he suffers. There, he breathes his last. There, he wins for us salvation. And the message in that is that the love and power and forgiveness of Jesus is for everyone, not just part of some elite group. Not just for religious insiders. Not just for people who have power and get the praise of people. It is for anyone who will come and bow down at that cross. It's for anyone who will come and receive what it is that God is giving. The the redemption that Jesus wins is for all of us. So listen, in in this story, I I don't know who that dude was, but I love him. I love him because you know what? He doesn't just sit around waiting for someone to give him permission to be on mission with Jesus. I love that. I love how he just goes after it. You know, I don't know what he understood, what he didn't understand. So far as we see, he didn't take a doctrinal exam. He didn't join the right denomination. He didn't, you know, he didn't go through ordination. You know, he didn't do any of that stuff. But somehow he picked up on this, that the authority that Jesus was giving was an authority that was for anyone who would take it in humility. This is what the authority of Jesus was for. That authority to preach the kingdom to cast out demons, to heal the sick. What was that an authority for? It's not the kind of authority we talk about, you know, in the world, or often too often we don't talk about, you know, in, in the church. Listen, because the authority was not an authority to control people. You hear me? It wasn't an authority to manipulate people. It wasn't an authority to get my way. The authority that Jesus gave, what was it? It was an authority to love people. See, the authority to evict demons out of people's lives is authority to love. Nothing more and nothing less. It's authority to love in power. And that's what Jesus gave freely to anybody who would take it. So somehow this guy caught on to it and said, well, that's for me, so I'm going to give it a shot. You know, he was secure enough to just do it. Listen, church, 
You don't got to wait for a pastor to love somebody. You don't got to wait for a pastor to give you permission. You don't got to wait for a title to love on somebody. You don't have to wait until you're recognized to move in the authority and in the power of God to love somebody. You don't got to do any of that. You just got to know that at the cross, the authority and the power that was given is for everyone who will come. The authority belongs to you, so move in the security that it provides. Move in the security that God is giving you to love and to put the world right again if the worship team could come forward. Okay, listen. Insecurity, as I close. Insecurity is a love killer. You hear me? Insecurity is a love killer. I'm starting to work outside. I got to buy a new hose. I have this big, bulky hose. You know, those ones show up on info commercials that like, they don't work? Oh, because I was going to buy one. Thank you. So, So I have this big, bulky hose, and it's forever getting kinks in it. You know, I'm forever getting kinks in this hose. Insecurities are like the kinks that I get in my hose. They keep the water from flowing in to fill the hose, and they will certainly block the water from flowing out of the hose to where it needs to go. And see, this is what insecurities do in our lives. They make war against love. Jesus died and rose again so that we could be free from that, so that the water of his love and his grace and power could flow through us to fill us and to go out to a world that needs his love and his grace. Love that. This is why Jesus wants to deal with our insecurities because it's a love killer. Now, so long as I don't let him deal with my insecurities, I may attempt to love, but I will always love with limits. And I will always love safely. See, if I'm, if I'm insecure about being great, which is really insecure about needing to be served, well then I'm going to, I might try to show love to you, but I'm only going to love to wherever the boundary is that I feel like I'm getting my own needs met. And if loving you requires saying something hard to you, if loving you requires being honest with you, in a way that's going to bump into your insecurities, well, I'm not going to risk it because we're codependent in our insecurities. I need you to serve me, to stay around me so that I can feel fulfilled. So it creates this veneer of love that really isn't love at all. But listen, when I know, when I know that at the cross, when I know that because of Jesus' resurrection, the creator of the universe served and loved me, then it frees me to love you with honesty and with truth, even if there's risk to myself, because my needs are already met. See, the obligation is off of you to constantly meet my needs. It lets us love each other more honestly. Listen, if I am insecure about weakness, well, I may love you up until a point, but I will only love you up until the place where your weakness and vulnerability makes me uncomfortable. Because when you start getting weak and vulnerable, it makes me feel like I might have to start getting in touch with my weakness and vulnerability. And you know what that creates in our churches? It's crazy. What that creates in our churches are Christian communities where the cross is supposed to be the center of our theology, the center of our worship, a suffering God 
is the center of everything, but we don't know what to do with suffering people. They don't fit with us. We don't know how to handle them. We don't know what to say. to as soon as, they, as soon as it gets messy and uncomfortable, it's like it doesn't fit our narrative of resurrection. But it's because we have a narrative of resurrection without the cross. There's no such thing as resurrection without the cross. The reason the resurrection is so glorious is because the cross was so horrific. Listen, we are a community that has suffering at its core. And this means we can hold on to the hurting. We can weep with those who weep. We can stand with them when they can't see God, when they can't hear God. It means we can be with them because we're secure enough to do it because we're not afraid of death. We're not afraid of weakness. And we know that suffering isn't the end of the story. Listen, if I always want to be in with them, listen, groups of friends are normal. Jesus had a group of friends, right? And within that group, he had three who were even closer to him. That in itself, that's just human behavior. That's not a bad thing. But groups that become exclusive are sinful. And this obsession of being in with them is also a sign of our insecurity. But when I know, listen, that because of the cross, I'm an insider, baby. You know what I mean? I'm an insider. You can't take that away from me. I'm an insider with God, then it takes away my obsession to always be in with them and it lets my life be a place where people can be in, right? It's like, let's stop trying to get into that circle and let's make our own, right? Because there's enough love to go around, because there's enough peace to go around, because there's enough of what Jesus accomplished at the cross to go around. We don't have to act like orphan children anymore. Right? You'd stand to your feet.